I thank God for all who have led us in worship this morning. Today we continue a sermon series called Head Scratchers. We're looking at the surprising stories, the parables Jesus told as an integral aspect of his preaching and teaching ministry. Today I want to draw your attention to a challenging passage in Luke 16. I'll read verses 1 through 13 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of my sermon is, What Are We Going to Do? Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. What are we going to do with this parable? For centuries, it has irritated interpreters. It has scandalized scholars. It has perplexed preachers. It has embarrassed ethicists. Bible scholar Duncan Derrett wrote, Much as commentators disagree as to the meaning of the parable, 
all are agreed as to the embarrassment it has caused. So why not just skip it? Why give it airtime when there are so many other wonderful parables and scriptures we could explore? Well, this parable is a teaching of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Plus, throughout my pastoral career, many Bible-reading churchgoers, including my dad, have asked me what in the world this parable means just a few months ago. A member here at Second Baptist came up to me with a confused look on her face asking about the meaning of this parable. It's a difficult passage of Scripture. It resists tidy conclusions. It defies definitive results. It may be the most befuddling head-scratcher of all the head-scratcher stories Jesus told. But it does not withhold meaning from those who investigate it rigorously. Right off the bat, the text incites serious questions. Why does Jesus make an exemplar out of a crook? Is Jesus condoning dishonesty? And what exactly is the moral of this immoral story? Is it, as verse 8 says, to be shrewd in dealing with our own generation? Is it, as verse 9 says, to make friends by means of dishonest wealth? Is it, as verse 10 says, to be trustworthy or faithful with little? So we can be trustworthy or faithful with much? Is it as verse 13 says, that we cannot serve both God and wealth? What are we going to do with this parable? Let's take a closer look. A rich man was paying a manager to manage his business. Amid this routine arrangement, a report came that the manager was squandering the rich man's property, much like the prodigal son squandered his inheritance. The accusation must have been true because the manager offers no protest and no defense and proceeds as if he has been caught botching his job. The rich man calls the manager in, demands to see the accounting books, and tells him he's fired. The manager is left holding a pink slip, knowing he will have to clean out his desk and turn in his keys quite soon. But I'm not strong enough to do manual labor, he thinks to himself, and I'm too ashamed to beg. Caught in a crisis, he hatches a plan. If I contact my boss man's clients and cut them a deal on my way out, then I'll be in their good graces when I start my search for a new job. So he calls in every last one of his boss man's clients. It may be his last day on the job, but he's got an appointment every 15 minutes with no lunch break. He sees client after client after client. How much do you owe the boss man, he asked the first guy. A hundred jugs of olive oil, the man replies. That's a lot, a 
according to Bible scholar Arland Holtgren, there would be about a thousand gallons of olive oil in a hundred jugs. Make it 50, says the manager. The client pays his reduced debt and walks out with a smile of relief. The next guy comes in wondering what's going on. How much do you owe the boss man? A hundred containers of wheat comes the answer. That's a lot too. There would be about a thousand bushels of wheat in a hundred containers. Make it 80, says the manager. The guy pays his discounted debt and dances out the door. It was a lucky day for the clients. When my family and I lived in Tennessee, there was a sandwich shop near our home. And many of the workers knew my daughters and me because we ate there rather often. Since we were regulars, they would spontaneously cut us a deal every now and then. On a few occasions, for example, they gave my daughters free drinks with their meals. One time, Nora was reminding me after the first service, they gave our daughters free brownies and offered to warm them up in the microwave for them. I had similar experiences at a bakery I used to frequent. Every time I went in there, I would order the same thing. One chocolate chip cookie, please. That's because they were, they were big chocolate chip cookies. And sometimes when they were busy, the woman behind the counter would take the cookie and put it in the bag and say, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, and just kind of wave me out the door. So I would walk out of there with a free cookie. And I remember one day I ordered my regular, you know, one chocolate chip cookie, and they put three cookies in the bag and charged me for one because the other two were broken. That was a good day. My point is that when an official representative of a business cuts me a special deal, I think of that person and the business in a very favorable light. That's part of what's going on in the parable, but on a much larger scale. We're not talking about a couple of lemonades or a cookie. We're talking about thousands of dollars in debt being cut in half or reduced by 20%. This manager had been fired and he was making all kinds of friends on his way out the door. His LinkedIn connections would have been through the roof. Several local merchants would have owed him a favor once he started floating his resume around. The guy was shrewd. But he was also dishonest, right? Well, some interpreters say... He actually wasn't doing anything wrong because he was cutting out his own commission when he gave those discounts. That's why his boss commended him in verse 8. But if this were the case, why would he be called dishonest in verse 8? The Greek term there literally means unrighteous. It wouldn't be unrighteous to forego his own commission in order to get his boss's debts repaid. 
Well, others say the manager's dealings may have been a little shady, but he was actually eliminating the interest that each client owed. And the Bible is clear in Exodus 22, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23, Psalm 15, and multiple other passages that money is not to be loaned at interest because this props up the rich on the backs of the poor. And so the manager was actually doing the right thing by cutting out the interest they owed. However, we don't know that the manager was cutting out the interest owed, nor were the clients poor and needy individuals. They were well-to-do professionals. And again, why would verse 8 call the manager unrighteous if he was cutting out the interest owed in order to follow biblical ethics? What? are we going to do with this parable? I think we face the facts head on. The manager is a rascal. He's a wily little scoundrel. He's slick, he's shifty, and he saves his own bacon. Even the boss man couldn't help but be sort of weirdly impressed. Pretty smooth, buddy. You got me on that one is how I read verse Eight. It's almost as if the manager's mendacious maneuvering falls into the category of a cool heist like the movie Ocean's Eleven. But this isn't Steven Soderbergh or Steven Spielberg spinning a story. It's Jesus. And this isn't an entertaining motion picture. It's an exemplary parable. Is Jesus lifting up a fraudulent rogue as a paragon of discipleship? Is Jesus pointing to malfeasance as a form of godliness? No way. In verses 10 through 12, Jesus emphasizes the importance of being trustworthy and faithful as Bible scholar David Garland notes, this helps us to see that Jesus does not advocate dishonesty or brazen opportunism. Indeed, this is the same Jesus who said in Matthew 5, 37, let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Jesus taught and embodied the virtues of honesty, integrity, and truth. Even in Matthew 10, when he taught his disciples to be shrewd as serpents, he simultaneously taught them to be innocent as doves. Jesus does not condone dishonesty, cheating, deception, or fraud, whether in major things or in minor things. There's no way he approves of the manager defrauding his employer out of 50 jugs of olive oil, 20 containers of wheat, and who knows what all else just to save his own skin. What is it about the manager then that's exemplary? What is the moral of this immoral story? What are we going to do with this parable? 
I would suggest that it's not the manager's underhandedness that's exemplary, but rather his shrewd use of finances to prepare for the future. What's exemplary is his feud, his, his shrewd use of his financial assets and resources in order to get ready for the future. Like the manager, we are to utilize money shrewdly, but for righteousness rather than unrighteousness. We are to be as shrewd in the ways of God's kingdom as others are in the ways of this world. Our shrewdness can be holy rather than unholy, pure rather than impure, moral rather than immoral. We can do some sanctified financial scheming with an eye toward heaven. When Jesus teaches us to make friends by way of money so that we will be welcomed into the eternal homes, he's talking about giving of our resources to help people in need so that we will have treasure stored up in heaven. Instead of engaging in consumeristic self-indulgence, we can deploy our material resources in order to assist the destitute. We can invest our financial assets to empower the downtrodden. This is how we store up treasures in heaven for ourselves. The manager made shrewd financial decisions to set himself up for a good a future, albeit in an immoral sort of way. Followers of Christ can make shrewd financial decisions to set ourselves up for a future with treasures in heaven, and we can do so in a moral way. Yes, we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The wise thing is not to blow all our resources on ourselves like the prodigal son did in the parable that immediately precedes this one, but rather to appropriate our resources in such a way that it sets us up for a bright future, an eternal future in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in Luke 12, a few chapters earlier, Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven. It makes me think of Christians that spend some money to help impoverished persons get food. It makes me think of Christians who give away their car to help their neighbor in need who has a job but doesn't have a way to get back and forth to work and to his home again. It makes me think of Christians who sell stock so they can give hundreds of thousands of dollars to help underprivileged persons in their community. It makes me think of Christians who prayerfully deploy their resources to help somebody get medical care, to help somebody who's homeless have a warm place to stay on a cold winter's night, to help somebody who's burdened by the terrible debt of one of those payday loans to get it paid off and turn them loose and set them free with a fresh start. It makes me think of Christians who go 
go uh, to their you know, advisor and set up their will and plan their estate in order to bless people who are down and out. It makes me think of Christians who do all kinds of brilliant, creative, shrewd, wise things financially in order to help people who are in need in the name of Jesus Christ for the glory of our God. So just one more question. What are we going to do with this parable? Amen.